Hi, this is Hal Aaron Cohen, and welcome to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors. It's July 3rd, and we're coming up on a holiday weekend, the 4th of July. Uh, hopefully there'll be lots of fireworks, and um, or maybe not. Uh, I have a dog, he gets really scared, and I have a gig, so... Um, I had an, I got a neighbor who's going to watch him for me because uh, my dog is in love with his dog. So at least he'll have a distraction. Um, but uh, those of you who are uh, heading down to the beaches or whatever, drive carefully. And if you're drinking a lot, well, you know, uh, make sure you got a, a ride home or just crash out on the floor somewhere or crash out on the beach somewhere. Today I'm talking with a guy named Phil Levitt. Phil is the drummer and lead singer in a band called Seven Horse. He's best known for being in a band called Dada. Um, he's played in lots of bands. He, uh, he, uh, he played in a cover band in Hawaii, followed by a rough stint in Alaska. And uh, I first met him at an outdoor festival on Fairfax Street. Uh, he was the drummer in a group called Films About Women. And I was the bassist lead singer for a band called The Fever. So we were por- performing on the same stage that day. I think they played first, but I would hardly call that opening for us because we sucked. Uh, Phil's band was great, though. So I got to hear films about women then. And man, I know an exceptional drummer when I hear one. So years later, Phil joined this amazing high-energy alternative rock trio called Dada consisting of uh, him, uh, Joey Callio, and Michael Gurley. And uh, they had an international hit with a song called I'm Going to Disneyland. And uh, they toured extensively. They opened for Sting. Mike Gurley left to tour with Kiefer Sutherland, which caused some uh, scheduling problems during their 25th anniversary tour. So we talked about that. And we talked about a guy named Darius Dagger and the special deluxe combo who Phil had played with for a while. Uh, then we talked a little bit about uh, the team behind their videos and their image and the new look and attitude behind Seven Horses music. We talked about Phil's dad, the bowler hat that he wears in a couple of his videos, present day peacocking, the Vegas influences. Um, then I got uh, Phil to t- tell me a couple of the stories. Uh, from his tales of the Holly- tales from the Hollywood Freeway, so he goes into the great story about Bob Dylan, and a really great story involving Bill Murray. So before I go into any more spoilers for you, let's just get into the conversation. Uh, please listen. Please share. Share the link to the podcast and um, get on my mailing list so I could. Uh, inform you when uh, all the good stuff is coming your way. All right, so here's me and Phil Levitt. You hear me now? Yeah, I feel like I'm in the middle of a Verizon commercial. (laughs) So, wow, it's been a really long time. Uh, Yeah, it has. I don't think I've seen you since when we were on Fairfax and you were with Films About Women. And then you've been in several iterations since then, right? Well, I was when I was on Fairfax playing with films about women. I think I was fourteen years old. So, wow, you were that. Oh, young? No, maybe that was. 
No, no, that was later, I guess. That was, yeah, it was probably in my, that was probably in my uh, early 20s. I might have been 21, maybe, at that point. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was my yeah, first band after I had, I had been out uh, on the road uh, with a cover band, and I had come back from Alaska, so I was probably 21. That's okay. the last time you saw me. Wow. I think so. Well, oh, no, no. The, not yeah. The last time I saw you was with uh, Dada, because I, I went with yeah. uh, Gray to... Um... Uh, well, it probably was the coach house, yeah. And uh, he was doing like a doc, and I was helping him with the second camera. Oh, oh, yeah. So I've been reading your Facebook page, as you suggested, and uh, some good stuff there, man. You, is that you uh, doing thanks. all the writing? Yeah. Yep, that's me. I found I uh, found an uh, I decided to uh, you know make it a creative outlet and uh, and trying to find a way to connect with people. Uh, I thought I'd just uh, tell some stories from my life, and people seem to react to it. Yeah, well, the stories you tell are are, are gold. You want to give give me like a little background about about you? I, I grew up. I was born in Las Vegas. Uh, I came out here. I was about 14 with my mother. My, my folks got a divorce, and uh, my mom and I came out to L.A., lived in the San Fernando Valley where I went to, uh, went to school, junior high and high school. Um, I, played, I played music all my life since I was literally – I mean, my, my parents talk about me being on a piano at three years old. Uh, I started playing the drums uh, definitely in single digits. I played all through school. I was the drum major of my marching band at Birmingham High School in Van Nuys. I started playing gigs around town then. I used to play down on Ventura Boulevard when I was uh, 15, 16 years old. And then after high school, I um, ended up at Pierce College for a little bit. I, I, I say that I was there for an eighth. <laughs> I didn't even make it through a quarter. But I didn't last, I didn't last too long there. I... Uh, I ended up getting a gig in a in a uh, a show band out of Chicago, so I was playing in this original band. Uh, guys that were older than me, they were in their twenties uh, out of Pasadena. We had this thing called uh, it was uh, ultimately called the Laser Tones at one point, and then uh, then it was the uh, Society Beat. And it was a real kind of uh, new wave-ish '60s influenced. I mean, we we covered the Buckinghams, you know, uh, kind of a drag. Yeah. And uh, the guy loved guy loved Elvis Costello too, so it had that kind of attitude. Anyway, the keyboard player got in a got a gig with uh, this couple of people out of Chicago that were putting together this kind of musical review thing, where there would be like these uh, four singer dancers up front, like that they they had worked in an amusement park show together, and they wrote this sort of musical review that was a history of popular music from the the forties, you know, the big band era through, at the time it was the early eighties, so. You know, Maniac, I think, was the closer. Maybe a Madonna song, like uh, one of the early Madonna songs, I think we, we did. Anyway, um, it was a tuxedo gig, you know, and uh, uh, we went out, uh, we got an agent. You know, th this thing rehearsed literally in the guy's barn. He lived in a suburb of Chicago. They had a big piece of property, and his parents were very successful, and they had a barn on the property, and we rehearsed there in the winter in Chicago. It was freezing. I remember wearing a full pea coat and gloves, my drum set up in there learning the show and some booking agent came from New Jersey and saw it and was able to start getting us gigs like in a quality Inn in Bellevue, Nebraska in the lounge was the first gig did two <laughs> weeks there started doing, you know, holiday inns and 
that kind of thing all around the country. I did that for about a year. And, uh, after that, I got into another road thing. Uh, saw my way into a, a thing based out of LA up, up, up in Lancaster. There was this guy that put together these bar bands and he had a little circuit of, of bars that he, uh, would play, but out of town, he, he had a gig in Hawaii and that was, that was where I went with him. We went to, uh, Kauai and played for two months on, uh, in the, in the port town of Lahui at a, a Chinese restaurant slash nightclub that doesn't exist anymore. It was a place called club jetty, which was actually pretty well known over there from, uh, all the way from the forties and fifties, Hollywood stars used to go there when they were over there filming in Hawaii. Did they have the, 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 hula dancers and the, the, the hula show? No, stuff. well, not at that place. This was a this was a family owned Chinese restaurant that was also a nightclub, and he'd put these bands in there for, you know, multiple sets. You'd play like four sets. People would dance, and I got fired off the gig because I was so shy that on the breaks I would retreat to the little band room. I wouldn't mingle with the customers, and he fired me off the gig huh. because I was just so not. I, I mean, I was just a kid. I was, you know, I had never been around these kind of people before and I, I just was very self-conscious uh but they brought me back because i couldn't get somebody else yeah do, do they want you a good drum do, do they want a good drummer do they want somebody who can schmooze i mean i would think that uh... they want they want they wanted both <laughs> they wanted both <laughs> i learned a lot on that gig though because that guy was a very tough band leader and uh, i remember one time uh my snare drum broke during the set and uh, like the strength the, the actual snares the, the strings broke and I didn't have a snare anymore. And I was trying to fix it and I was fumbling around trying to fix it. And the guy came over with a piece of duct tape and he just like put the snare up against the head and slapped a piece of duct tape over it and said, okay, you're done. Get back out there. <laughs> back to work. So he was uh, back to work. Yeah. He was a, he was a pretty uh, tough band leader. Then we went from there to Alaska. I spent two and a half, two and a half months in Kodiak, Alaska, which was kind of the flip side of, uh, being in Hawaii, you know, Hawaii was like magic. And uh, Kodiak, Alaska. There's no women in Alaska, at least back then there was. That's correct. Many. Yeah, there was, uh, it was a, a coast guards, the crab fishermen, you know, who are, they, they, these guys were just insane. You know, they go out every year to those crab in and you yeah. know, every year somebody would be killed out there. That, and, that's I mean, a hard was, life. Yeah, it was da very dangerous. And those guys, when they when they came back alive, they really wanted a party and they had a lot of money. And then you had the cannery workers who were all Filipinos and all of these groups hated one another. So they would fight on a regular basis in the bar. And there were probably, like you said, there were three women to go around. So there was a real shortage of women and a lot of angry dudes and then a band on stage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of like the Blues Brothers with the, with the chicken wire, you know, stuff flying around and people having fights and you just kind of keep playing. And if anything got too close, you'd have to watch out for your gear. But it was another education because we played all kinds of styles and we played all night. It was a six set gig. We played from 10, 10 p.m. till four in the morning. And uh, you do that six nights a week. So did that you, was- Did you ever uh, do a gig like at the end of a snow dog run or anything like that? A snow dog run. Oh, you mean like a sled dog? Sled dog, yeah, sled I, no, dog. No, we were, we were they, I never saw any of that in Kodiak. You know, it's out on the Aleutian chain, so it's not in the mainland. It's it's a little warmer there, although it's, you know, it's freezing cold. Uh, but, you know, the sun would come up at 10, 30, 11 in the morning and go down at 3. <laughs> that would be all the daylight you'd have. <laughs> um, it was crazy. Do a lot of sleeping and staying up all night playing and got exposed to a lot of 
strange kind of people and strange drugs and crazy women. Uh, and I did that for a couple of months. And, uh, and then I had a band here in, in LA, like you mentioned, films about women. And uh, out of that, I got myself a publishing deal with uh, Warner Chapel. I had a songwriting partner and we, we happened to write a song that people thought was pretty good. I had some really kind of successful people playing on it. Um, you know, I, I, I got a, a demo uh, a deal for to make demos for a publishing company for Warner Chapel, and they give me like 400 bucks to do, you know, to do songs. Did films? And, did you uh, put a, a CD out when you were with Films About? Uh, we, do, we we put a vinyl EP. It was before CDs. <laughs> there were no CDs. <laughs> yeah, we cut. Yeah, we we released a vinyl EP. Is that um, still in circulation? It, I don't know, man. I don't have one. I wish I did. I, I'd love to hear that now. <laughs> But uh, I haven't seen that in a long. Somebody's got it. <laughs> I don't oh, know where. Yeah, sure, it's probably a collection. Um, we didn't make that. You know, we didn't make that many of them. So it's if anybody has that, that would be amazing. Uh, but I got this deal, you know, with uh, Warner Chapel, and we would make these demos, and I'd hire guys to come in and play, like the bass player Mark Harris, who has had a long career playing with the band Venice here in Los Angeles, and uh, this little-known guitar player named Rusty Anderson would come in. Uh, who was just getting started in in the session scene in LA, and he'd come in and play for a hundred bucks on my songs. And he uh, has been in Paul McCartney's band for the last fifteen years. So we've uh, we, we had a few interesting guys come through come through our little projects. And then along the way, I met uh, Joey Callio through a mutual friend. He was he was working over at Geffen Records in the mailroom. He was the head of the mailroom, and. Uh, I was having a romantic relationship with an older woman who was working in the publishing arm of Geffen. And um, Calio was partnered up with this uh, kid named Mike Gurley, who's a guitar player, singer, and they, they were doing this duo, kind of like Simon and Garfunkel-esque sort of music. Right. Beatle influence, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, close harmonies, acoustic guitars, but they wanted to go uh, more electric and more rock and roll. Right. And, and then along comes that, Phil Levitt. Uh, yeah. They, they, she suggested that we meet. And uh, it didn't take long to realize that, wow, we have some really good chemistry. And we've, you know, we played together for 25 years after that. And you still plan to do a Dada thing at some point? Another? You know, I would never say, uh, I would never say never. We did a 25th anniversary tour uh, in 2017. And uh, there were some problems, uh, you know, the band, I mean, it was a great tour, but there were interpersonal issues in the band. You know, it's very tough to keep a band together for that long. Yeah. Well, I know and, Gurley's uh, playing with uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland now, too. So. Uh, yeah, he actually he left that. He left that band. That was a problem while we were doing, you know, we were doing our tour. That was a problem because he got double booked and he ended up playing for Kiefer on a night that thought I was playing a 25th anniversary show. And uh, that kind of thing, uh, I, that rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it would. Yeah. So that kind of led me to believe that uh, I can't put myself, you know, because I was kind of running the show for, for Dada, booked, getting the shows booked. And, you know, we did like a 40-city tour. That's a, that's a huge amount of work setting that up. So you, you didn't have like a manager or a road manager? It was like you, it was all you doing? All well, my, my wife is the road manager. Uh, so we work together. I mean, I'm I'm sort of the manager. I was the manager of the band, and my wife was the tour manager. So she was doing all the advancing of the shows and booking the hotels, and you know, uh, 
we hired the crew and we hired the bus and we did we did all that log- all those logistics up front and then if you're doing all that and you, you and you have somebody who is not totally in it really is kind of frustrating and it's not gonna it's it doesn't bode well for doing more now that's not to say if somebody called me up and said hey we've got a dada show you know booked on such and such a date would you do it i would absolutely show up for that but to but, but you to couldn't do all that guarantee myself, that Michael Gurley would show up for that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I'm just saying if he came to me and said I got something, then I would show up. Right, right. You know? Okay, but well, I that makes go, sense. I can't, I can't go out there and, and make it all happen. I'm, I'm working on Seven Horse right now anyway. So. Yeah, and Seven that Horse I, is a I know, blast. I know. I got to tell you. I, I, am, oh, thanks. I, yeah. I can't, like, get enough of Seven, seven Horse. It's, uh, I'd love got to hear that, man. Signature, the signature sound, I, I, I don't quite know how to describe it except that like while well, i was reading your influences they were uh, like uh sun house and the who and yeah and all that but i also yeah. couldn't help but notice uh which song was it um oh on, on low fuel drug run right. it had it remind me of rl burnside you know it's bad you know mm-hmm. that's that's right, right. that's immediately like took me there because, well you know when we started that we that was definitely a blues the blues were really at the forefront. You know, it's like, we got to get back to the basics. That's kind of where we were coming from with, with seven horse, Joey and I had been playing together for so long. I mean, 20 years as a rhythm section at that point. Um, and, you know, he moved to guitar. He was a bass player in Dada and he, you know, Dada had had a big hit in the nineties. And for those people who don't know, we had this song called I'm going to Disneyland. That was a, that was a pretty big, a top five uh, modern rock track. And, you know, we did a lot of touring and open for sting and, did our, a lot of our own shows all around the country. And, and he and I had been playing together for a long, a long time as a rhythm section. And so when it came time to uh, start a new project, um, he wanted, he decided to move the guitar and, and make me the singer, which, you know, in Dada, I was never the lead singer. Now, so what, what were you doing for, for bass? Cause I noticed in the videos, it's just the two of you, but one of my, I did see a bass player in a recent video. Yeah, we've added a guy uh, over the last year. I mean, we did it as a two-piece for for about seven, six, seven years. And in the studio on the first record, we did, we didn't we didn't hardly use any bass even on the studio tracks. And as we progressed, we just decided, you know, our, as opposed to just staying in that really stripped-down mode and doing one thing over and over again, we yeah. wanted to expand our sound. And Joey's a bass player, so it was a natural to start adding. Uh, to the sound because you know we also really are into the stones and you know the stones uh live is a big band you know with backing vocalists and a horn section and yeah you know all that so so we wanted to like for example i mean we're playing at the viper room uh in 10 days on on june 27th we're going to be a four-piece that night we're going to have a keyboard player with us on stage oh so you know we've 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 taken the sound and kind of expanded it but in the early days of seven horse it was like let's get back to the real let's see what we can do just the two of us and make it a real blues centered thing and kind of get back to the beginning of what rock and roll is about which is simplicity and and you know and groove and find an attitude because that's really what a band has to have you know you're trying to find an identity a point of view yeah and for seven horse uh the point of view was well i'm from vegas and the nightlife and, uh, you know, the road. Yeah. And, well, uh, and the if you live in Vegas, no yeah. matter where you go, 
you're going to be driving in the desert for a while. So you <laughs> yeah, got that yeah, desert, desert driving kind of feel. Exactly. That's just in my blood, I guess. Yeah, it makes you want to drive. Listening to your song makes you want to get into the car. Like, I can't listen to this here. i got to get out in my car and right. drive to this. That's how I listen to it. Whenever I check our records out, you know, if we come out of the studio, I always do it on the road. I always put it in my car and drive. And uh, I think that's a great way to listen to our stuff. It's kind of it's kind of made for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, speaking of uh, the low fuel drug run, uh, you, you uh, just wrote uh, talking about your 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 writing on yep. your, fa- your Facebook posts. You wrote a post about it and uh, you mentioned uh, Darius Dager, the, the special deluxe combo. Was, what, what, yeah. Yeah. What was that? Darius is uh, Darius is a guy. He's a, he's a poet and a writer and a, and a English professor and a musician. And I met him. Uh, I met him in the late '80s uh, at a. Uh, I went to a Halloween party in downtown Los Angeles, at a hotel, uh, and he was playing in one of the rooms. And I walked in, and here's this guy singing a song like a Bob Dylan kind of character, wearing a, fi- a Greek fisherman's hat, strumming an acoustic guitar, yeah. and singing a song about. Uh, that had the line in it. Uh, we talked of Kurt flood being bitter and doc Ellis is no hitter. That was a line in this song. And, uh, <laughs> I'm a big, big baseball fan. So that got my attention, you know, and, and the way he was using it, these kind of images, I really got interested in what he was doing. And he was a real individual sort of, he had sworn. Yeah. He had, he had been in a band in town and he's part of the Paisley underground in LA that scene in the, in the eighties uh, and uh, he had gotten out of his band and he wasn't interested in playing with anybody. He just wanted to do his own thing, you know, Woody Guthrie with a guitar. And uh, I was like, no, man, we, we got to play together. I got to play your stuff. I just, I was just so into it. I thought he was really intelligent and the music was interesting. And so I just basically hounded him until he would let me play. Yeah, and, I, I, uh, briefly, we ended up... I briefly visited his uh, Facebook page. He's got a big picture, like uh, about six or seven acoustic guitars. So right. that tells me right there he's you know he's a player. Yeah, he loved Bob Dylan. I mean, he was he was that kind of a guy. He loved, he loved that. He, songs are very wordy, multiple verses. You know, ten a song could have eight, ten verses in it. He's he's just he's a a writer. Um, you know, my thing is I, I I'm a lot more streamlined, but but I did like his music a lot. We became really good friends and you know, kind of like an older brother to me. And we ended up uh, out on the road together, uh, playing in a little trio that he called the Special Deluxe Combo. And, uh, the, yeah, the song Low Fuel Drug Run was kind of loosely based on this trip that we made back from, um, <laughs> we were out in Tucson and, uh, had to get back after a show and return the rental car. I always introduce the song as, you know, this is a song about a race to return a rental car on time. And, you know, it was an all, all night drive back to LA, uh, fueled by, uh, the, uh, White Crosses. White little, Cross the little white pill. Yeah. Did, was that a yeah, one-shot a thing, pill. or did you go down? Did you take that uh, side trip for a little while, or did you just get? No, right I wasn't. I, that, just that drive. I mean, I I learned on that drive that this is really not for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did. It did get us there, but I just did not. Uh, I don't. I don't like those kind of stimulants. I, I just find I, I. I always have this panic, like I'm going to have a heart attack. I just thought. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. You either get <laughs> addicted right away, go down yeah. that, that a very dark to a very dark place or you immediately yeah. go, Oh, I can never do this. No, this I just, is... that was just not my thing. But I, that night it did get us back to LA and uh, that, you know, there's a lot of that. The song has some of that in it and there's some other stuff, but uh, that was the impetus for it. 
So more about the the whole seven horse thing. You I, you know you yeah. got a signature sound. I, I it's like kind of a high compression. And you sing through the megaphone and Joey's Gretsch yeah. with the Marshall amps. It just all makes this really unique rock blues kind of sound. It's like totally your own. You really did nail it. If you were trying to achieve oh, a, a, a unique sound, you you, you did. And it, well, it, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, early on, uh, certainly there was a, we used a lot of distortion on the vocals. I was an insecure lead singer. And when you're an insecure lead singer, uh, you tend to put a lot of effect on your voice. And uh, do you, you sing, know, we would when sing you're in concert. Do you use the megaphone on stage? Uh, I do. I use the I use the megaphone uh, down off the stage. Sometimes I'll take it, I'll take it and walk out into the audience with it. Get up from the drums because you know I'm playing drums. So yeah, I I use it as an uh, as an opportunity to get up and move around a little bit. And I'll go down and get in the crowd. And people are always kind of, first of all, they're always a little bit shocked when somebody walk gets off the stage and comes down in the audience that breaking that wall is always kind of a moment in a show. So I do it a little bit there, but you know, in the studio, uh, particularly at the beginning, everything was, we were messing with every, the sound of every vocal. And I wanted to hide a little bit. Um, cause I, I didn't have that much confidence in what I was doing. And so you sing through a bullet mic, you know, that you use for harmonica and you run it through an amplifier and distort it. Now your voice sounds cool, and maybe you're not the greatest singer, but your voice sounds cool, so, so it works out. <laughs> then you start to get a little better, and you go, I don't really need that as much anymore. So we tend not to do it as much as we did at the beginning, but it did create a, a vibe for us and, and got us into a into kind of an attitude that worked well on, uh, you know, Meth Lab Zoso Sticker as well, the tune that we that found its way into uh, Martin Scorsese's film, The Wolf of Wall Street. That's probably a big reason why it got in there. In, in the same vein, uh, your videos, your music videos, also continue that same attitude. The the your color, your, your use of yeah. colors and your use of sepia and, and like old black and white. And, and I don't know who does the image cu the curation for those little snippets, but it's like is it you and Joey or you and your wife or who? You got a guy that no, knows I got a guy. A guy I got a guy in uh, got a guy in St. Louis that we've been working with since the very beginning. This guy has been an invaluable uh, addition to our team. This guy named Bo Caldwell, who's a real done a lot of the creative for us. But we've also had some other people shoot video. You know, the color videos, the more production oriented videos. Uh, worked with a director called Andrew Gant, who's done stuff. And uh, another buddy out here is just we just released something uh, that was shot totally on iPhone down in my basement that my friend Chris Lampson shot. So uh, there's a few people who have been involved. Uh, and then, you know, our certainly our aesthetic is always all over this stuff. I mean, I think that's really important for a band to define its image. I think that was one of the problems in Dada that, uh, you know, we were kind of anti-image. And that sounds good on paper, but it really doesn't, it doesn't make your band any better. You know, yeah, so it, your band is actually better with a well-defined image and a look and an attitude. And then you deliver the music behind that that fits with all that. And now you've got something. Um, so with Seven Horse, we were very cognizant. We really were focused on that. We wanted to present it a certain way with a certain aesthetic that people could could see what we're about and get into that if they liked it. Yeah, there's definitely you definitely got a good team going here. You know, how, how many people all yeah, together we, are, are involved that are with the Seven Horse? Well, project? it's interesting. We've had you know we've had a, it's sometimes it's been a lot of people because you know for a long time we were 
and this is a lot of what I've been talking about on Facebook actually recently is we made a major switch in how we're presenting and marketing our music, you know, even in the, in this modern music business where independent artists have access to distribution and, you know, that they never had before. And I, you know, I, I come out of an era where, you know, we had record deals and Dada, we were signed at IRS records and we made one record on MCA records. So we had been through the label system. And then when we started seven horse, uh, we really didn't know how to do it any other way uh, other than the way it had always been done. But now it was like all the people, you know, with the, with the demise of the record industry I mean, or, or the, the breakup of the record industry, a lot of the independents and uh, a lot of the labels got swallowed up by other bigger corporations. And a lot of people ended up out on the street that used to work there. People that were in marketing and sales and promotion, uh, radio and publicity, they all went off on their own. So now as an independent artist, you can hire these people. So we'd put a couple of guys on radio promotion, hire a publicist, uh, get a marketing consultant in. Now you got a big team going. All these people are on the payroll. But you're still competing against big label projects that have 100 times the money you do. So you're, you're fighting an uphill battle that's almost impossible to win as a truly independent project, even when you get a little bit of press or you've got a, a little bit of a you make a little bit of a mark in uh, the culture, like through Wolf of Wall Street. We still couldn't really capitalize on that because we just didn't have the money. And this right. has been going on for years. So I'd be, I'd have, you know, half a dozen people on the payroll. Nobody can promise you any results. Of course, they, they, all they can say is we'll do our best. And when it doesn't work out, you know, oh well, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> it. You've spent the money. Nothing you can do. Plus, touring is incredibly expensive. So you know, you're trying to figure out a way to increase the size of your audience, increase your reach and get out there and play, which is the whole point of this thing, you know, is to be out there in a room full of people and create a, uh, a moment that uh, transcends everything else that's going on in the world and just creates um, energy that everybody is into that, that night. You ever think so, of like maybe uh, somewhere down the line, like uh, Joey get like a, an acoustic dobro and then you do like a, congas and bongos and do house concerts well i mean we've done you know we've done that kind of stuff on radio a lot i mean he does play he he plays uh dobro and we play it on stage he's got it plugged in now but he certainly we take it into radio stations and he plays it acoustically and i've you know i sing or i play a you know, like you said a, you know, a snare drum or a pair of bongos yeah uh we've we've done a house concert um you know he does them a lot yeah house concerts are cool you know we we, we could do that I personally, I like, you know, I like turning it up. I like playing the full drum set and I like the rock club atmosphere a little bit better, but that's always, it's always an alternative. Yeah. But in well, any that's case, cause um, the, the you know, hard rock sound is in your blood more. I think. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, three months ago, uh, we decided to let everybody go from the team, except for the real key people like, you know, Bo Caldwell, as I mentioned. Um, but I mean, we fired everybody, publicist, social media consultant, radio uh, promotion guys, marketing consultants, we let them all go. And we decided that what we were going to do is focus all of our energy and our resources into promoting ourselves on social media. We had a, a fairly good-sized following, but they weren't totally activated. And so that was the beginning of the process of putting out more content, more creative stuff that would draw people to us and, and – getting into conversations with, with people via our Facebook 
platform and trying to create a community that, you know, you'd have to be there to know about Seven Horse because we're not going after, you know, Rolling Stone is not going to write about us right now. If they write about us, they're going to have to call us because we're not calling them. Right. Uh, you know, when you have a publicist, they are your publicist is out on the street waving, please look at my project, you know, Rolling Stone, New York Times, uh, Village Voice, LA Weekly. You know, I'm pitching you, I'm pitching you, I'm pitching you. And so we decided, you know, forget that. We're not going to pitch anymore. We're just going to do our thing. You, you don't need it, really. You've got this thing in your pocket that has two and a half billion people on this platform and maybe a hundred thousand of them like seven horse. And if they did, that'd be plenty for us. Sure. Hey, so, get on the right you know, podcast or, you know, I'm not saying this one is, but <laughs> I, you <laughs> yeah, notice well, I didn't do it. any shameless self promo on, on your Facebook post either. I, I, didn't I noticed that, myself. but now we're going to do it. Well, yeah, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to like jump the gun and I just thought that would right. be obnoxious. So I didn't do that. Right. But I'm a big yeah. fan of Mark Maron. Uh, you mentioned you listened yeah, to too. him. And it's like He's the one who got me started. Like, I, <laughs> right. like uh, I got to do a podcast. Yeah, I'd love to be on his show. You know, that's a tough show to get on now, though. That's like getting on television, you know. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, pretty much. So, you know, if something like that should happen, it's because it's going to be because we've made enough noise doing it this way that, that the gatekeepers have to start paying attention to us as opposed to we're banging on the door asking to be let in. It's like, I've been doing this too long to be asking to be let in. Right. You know, I'm already in. I got a lot of people around the world who are fans of this band and we're just going to make it grow through, through these, you know, through our social media and through streaming and, you know, and wherever else we uh, release our music, YouTube, um, you know, you could have a whole community of people, that is outside what the mainstream music press is covering. And you could, you could do very well like that. And those people will be very loyal because they, they're there, you know, uh, they've discovered it on their own. They weren't told that it was cool. They found it themselves and it resonated. And now, you know, you, you have interacted with them and developed a relationship with your fans and you keep delivering good music that they like and other stuff. You know, that's why I'm writing so much on Facebook is I'm trying to bring value to what we're doing there. So it's not just a photo and a couple of lines. It's like, I'm going to tell you about my life yeah. on Facebook. Speaking about your life, um, in, in um, uh, a two-stroke machine, you know, is, is yeah. that based on anybody's dad in real life? Is it like, Yeah, well, that's my dad. Um, so that's, know, that's really like based on your relationship to yeah, your that, father? Yeah, that, that, that happened. I mean, that, 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 yeah, that's all about my relationship with my father. Um, you know, uh, it opens with uh, my dad pulled a gun on my granddad one day, and that happened in my house when I was, you know, six, seven years old. Yeah, that's um, heavy. It is. And, uh, you know, the song ends with, uh, it's a, it's really a song about forgiveness. And, uh, but it's more, you know, it's, I got to admit, that's a work in progress. You know, when you have a tough childhood and you have a fractured relationship with a parent, you can spend your rest of your life trying to figure out a way to repair that or to find make some sense out of it and we're having an interesting time now because my dad broke his hip uh, a, a few months ago and he's laid up in a nursing rehabilitation center and uh you know he's getting up there he's almost he's going to be 79 next month and you know there's a lot of stuff that we're still dealing with and now he really needs me so it's a it's a it's an interesting time when you have to kind of face those things and try to be a 
stand-up person, you know, and try to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and do the right thing. Yeah, there's that scene in the video where you meet him, like, in a restaurant, and it's sort of like a... Right. Yeah, kind, that's him. That's kind my of dad. a cursory nod. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's not everybody that can, can do that. And then you're, that's actually your dad in the video? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, wow. So, well, he's supporting you. Uh, you're, you're, that, oh, yeah. Has no, he always he's, been he's, uh, I mean, he's, supporter of your artistic endeavors? Always, always. He's a big fan. Big fan. He loves music, you know, and he's a, he's. A, I think he's a frustrated artist himself. I think that might be the the uh, underlying story of his life is that he didn't pursue the things that he really wanted to. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was a he, he worked in the gambling business for a long time. He's a blackjack dealer in Las Vegas, and uh, I think what he really wanted to do is be an actor or a writer. And he's a good, he's a good writer. Is that his bowler but, hat that you wear in the videos? No, no, that, no, no. That, you wear it well. That, is, that, is that like part of the thing too? The bowler hat? And, uh, and, it was at the beginning. Again, you know, it was uh, at the beginning. It was uh, that has changed. I don't wear it on stage. I'm not wearing a hat on stage anymore. I shave my head now. Yeah, so I, I lost the hat. I, I, I wear a hat occasionally, but I, you know, I decided that look, I'm going to go out there with everything I got and. Uh, I'm going to show it to the world. I'm not going to cover it with a hat. I don't want to be trapped inside of a hat for my whole life. <laughs> that's the thing. You start you start doing that on stage, and then you can't stop. You know, that's your look. I'm just like, nah, I don't want that. I don't want to be the guy in the hat. Right. So you put it on just long enough, and then we're moving yeah. on. Right. So. so now I'm a little. I look a little different. I'm a little more Vegasy now. I I, got, I wear these uh, sequins jackets and big glasses and stuff. I like, I like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of fashion conscious, so I'm always looking for something cool. Yeah. You're always peacocking. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Well, I think that's the job of the front man. You know, I'm so tired of seeing these bands where everybody looks like they, you know, just got up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, either I could be going to Seven Eleven for a coffee or I could be performing. I- I'm not into that Yeah. to me, you know, and I, maybe that's the Vegas in me. Cause I grew up watching performers on stage in Las Vegas where, you know, guys worked in tuxedos and the women looked amazing. And, you know, that there was a, an aesthetic about presenting yourself on stage. Yeah. I mean, I'm Liberace. I was going to say you're like the Liberace of drummers, but then yeah. I thought, no, I don't want yeah. to say that. No, it's all right. I but mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. He was, <laughs> he had some amazing costumes. Elvis, you know, yeah. it's like get dressed. You're so you're stage. going all People in basically. You're just going all yeah, in. Yeah. All in. Nothing wrong Absolutely. with that. I, no, I like that. So now, can I ask you to tell the Bob Dylan story that you posted? Well, sure, of course. Because, I mean, I know people could go to the Facebook page and read it themselves. Right. Well, and I, I, hope I, they I do. hope they do. And I'm going to yeah. encourage everybody to go to your Facebook page and read your posts because they're incredible. And I'm sure by the time I put this out there, you'll have already got five or six new posts. Yeah, I got a couple up my sleeve. But uh, this was a thing. I mean, this doesn't happen that often. Um you know, I started this whole thing with uh, this idea. I, I call it Tales from the Hollywood Freeway, because if you live in L.A. and you grow up here and you're playing music here, I mean, even if you just are living here, you're going to run into celebrities. That's just part of living here. They're everywhere. But in my case, you know, I was a little bit inside because I was in the music business and, you know, you get to meet people. And, um, and so I told one story about playing golf with Bill Murray, which definitely was music related because he, he came to he was at our show that we opened for sting in New York and I ended up meeting him that way. But, uh, Dylan, uh, is a bit, a little bit different in that, uh, I, I had, uh, met a guy named Peter Himmelman. who's another, uh, singer songwriter here in Los Angeles, 
a really talented guy. And uh, we had gotten to be a little bit friendly. This was probably late eighties. This was before I was ever in Dada. And I was just, I was still kind of a kid just starting out. And um, so I was hanging with Peter a little bit and we played together a little and, and uh, he's an Orthodox Jew and I'm Jewish. So he invited me uh, to his house for Passover. I, I, I didn't have anything going that year. I, I'm not really that big into the holidays, but you get invited to somebody's house, you go. He lived in Santa Monica. He said, come out early. You know, some of Maria's, his wife's name is Maria. Some of Maria's family will be there. Maria's happens to be Bob Dylan's daughter. <laughs> so I show up early and nobody's there. And we go for a walk around the neighborhood. And then I come back and guests start arriving. And it's a really eclectic uh, group of people. You've got a, there was a rabbi from, like a Chabad rabbi and there was a physicist and some music business people. And one of the brothers, Maria's brothers, uh, I think uh, Jesse, who's a filmmaker, I think he, he came and a bunch of family friends and whatnot. And we're sitting down to eat and the chair across from me is empty. And I don't know what's going on. Maybe somebody didn't show up. And all of a sudden the doorbell rings and uh, you, I look over to my right where the front door is. They open the door and there's this guy standing in the doorway He's uh, not super big. He's got a hoodie on, gray hoodie, hood pulled tight around his face. He's wearing hip boot waders, you know, like like you'd go fly fishing in. This guy's a strange looking guy. Not, this was not before your typical the Unabomber. Seder, uh, no, outfit. attire, no. He looked more like the Unabomber, but that was before the Unabomber. And uh, he's got this gigantic Great Dane with him. I mean, this huge dog comes into the house and, you know, you double take it and it's like, oh, it's Bob Dylan. <laughs> the Bob Dylan, it's him, you know, the voice of a generation. So he comes in and, I mean, they're really treating him with kid gloves. I mean, he, it, it's, he's almost like a fragile character. He's not saying anything. He looks uncomfortable. He's got a weird energy about him. It's very intense. I was immediately, I didn't know what to do. I was, you know, it, it, it was very uncomfortable from the beginning for me because there's just so much coming at you with Bob Dylan. You know, he's such a presence and an icon. It's just, just heavy. So he comes in, they put him right, right across from me. And we're on a little, you know, a folding table that they brought in. It's a, like a, a long card table. It's, it's not that wide. He's two feet away from me, sitting right across from me. <laughs> And what do you say? What do you say to Bob Dylan? I mean, you know, especially as a musician, as a songwriter, you know, like, hey, man, I really like your stuff. That doesn't seem like it's going to cut it. Um, <laughs> so I didn't say anything. And he wasn't talking. So it was it was weird. And the family was hovering around like, Dad, is there anything we can do for you? And what what can we get you? And other people are kind of staring at him. I mean, it's obviously this is the kind of thing that happens to him all the time. People are always just looking at him, yeah. trying to figure out a way to talk to him. Um, and finally, as the food starts coming out, the rabbi, two seats down, turns and says, Bob, what's your Hebrew name? And, uh, you know, and Bob, was he was born Jewish. And he, in fact, and I did a little research on this, he had a bar mitzvah. and He has a Hebrew name. But uh, his response to the rabbi was, uh, Hebrew name? I ain't got no Hebrew name. And that was the first words Bob Dylan said, and it sounded exactly like Bob Dylan. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder you know, why. So that, 
Well, that he, he did go everything. through like a, a born again Christian kind of thing he did. period he in did. his life. So, and maybe he was maybe he was about that at the time. I don't know. I don't know. Could maybe be. he was into that, or he just wanted to disavow it, or you know. But but Dylan likes to he likes to mess with people anyway. That's kind of one of the things that he does. I used to hear stories about how he would like lean into car windows on Sunset Boulevard. You know, like he'd be in the studio at Ocean Way or something, and he'd come out for a breath of fresh air, and somebody pull up to a red light, and he'd put his face in their car. Uh, just to just to mess with him. So did you, he did you see that, the Rolling Thunder uh, documentary on Netflix yeah. yet? Watch I just it. watched it. Just watched it last night. So you can tell. I mean, that's kind of how he was. Very intense. He liked to play games with people. He liked to. Re, you know, he's never really told the truth in interviews. It's not what he's about. He likes to just like keep people guessing, and that's what he said to the rabbi. Hebrew name. I ain't got no Hebrew name. <laughs> At that point. <laughs> that point i got a little i got even more nervous you know i was just again i was a kid so you're like and, stomach uh, churning the whole time when he was yeah i there. mean i just i could not enjoy this meal and i finally was like i gotta get out of here you know i do not want to be around this guy anymore he's just too much yeah. and uh i turned to this guy who was you know one of the guys from geffen who was there and i was like hey uh you can be a ride home. He's like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so off we went. And Escape that might have been the last Dylan. time I saw Yeah, I don't know if I saw Peter after that. But the funny thing was, and this isn't in the Facebook post, that we're making our last record, Superfecta, our most recent full-length album. We're, we're working with uh, our producer, Dave Way, who's a multi-Grammy winning engineer and producer. And uh, he's a good friend of uh, Jacob Dylan. And so while we're on the session, you know, Bob's grandson right. comes up to like intern on the session and hang out. And this kid looks exactly like a young Bob Dylan. He's got the curly hair. He, uh, how old is he? he? Want, he's a, he's got to be 16, 17. Unbelievable. And uh, he was up there like do, going on food runs for us. Kid was really nice. And he looks he looks so much like Bob Dylan. Somebody somebody came to hang out on the session one day and uh and met him and uh on the way out they were both leaving at the same time and and uh, he didn't know you know he didn't he didn't know who he was he met him by uh, by first name only mm. and uh he said to him uh hey man does anybody ever tell you you look exactly like bob dylan <laughs> <laughs> and the kid and the kid was like i've never heard that before he totally played it off um he's already taken after his granddad <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> judah that's his name judah his name is judah Judah Dillon. Okay. I should tell you, um, when I worked at Jerry's Famous Deli, you know, Bob Dylan was sitting yeah. out on the patio. Right. And I was, I, I, I had it in my head like I was going to go, hey, Boo Wilbury. Yeah. How's it going? But as soon as I saw him and got close right. enough, I, I'm like, this guy's totally unapproachable. Like, he just yeah. gives exactly. off that vibe. You know, so, so I know what you're talking it's so, about. It's so funny, too, that, that uh, people, you know, on that, on that post, um, you know, some people would come, you know, and I would say, what would, you know, I, I'd kind of pose the question, uh, what would you, you know, what would you say to, to your, you know, to, to, to an icon who, you know, you, you, if you met an icon, who, what would you say to that person? Yeah. Um, and everybody, and a lot of people were like, uh, you know, Oh, I would just, I would just act normal. You know, they're just like us. And, a lot of people were kind of thinking that given in the moment with Bob Dylan, you'd just be to totally cool. And and I can tell you, you would not be totally cool. 
know, you would you would feel a little no, bit. No, yeah, you think you, in, yeah, you think you know what you'd say until you, you get the opportunity, and then yeah. you clam up like a clam. But you know, I've met other celebrities that were much easy, much more approachable and easier to talk to. And 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 a lot of it is me, what I'm bringing to the situation. When you run into somebody like Bob Dylan, it's just so overwhelming. You never expect to see him in person, and then there he is sitting across from you. So I'm sure some of that's on me, but. He was not making it easy, and I don't think he does. That's just part of who he is. I mean, you could see that on Rolling Thunder. He, he doesn't make it easy on anybody, even back then. He has even his closest friends twisting in the wind. Yeah. I mean, that's just how he, that's how he rolls. Right. I think the only one who could really really deal with stand-up to deal with him was Joan Baez. You know, she was kind of like and, – and Joni Mitchell is such a badass in that thing, too. It's like, you know, she's not going to get intimidated by anybody. Yeah, I just saw Joni in the latest chunk because I'm watching it in chunks because I just wanted right. to savor it, so I didn't watch it all at once. Yeah. Right, right. So yeah, so I just saw the uh, the segment with Joni in it. It's great. Yeah, you know, now I had a, an opportunity to meet and hang out a little bit with Ringo Starr, and it was completely the opposite. You know, Ringo was like the greatest host ever, and so happy you know and, and putting out so much love to everybody and you know it's kind of his brand yeah his peace and love and he's doing that you know whereas bob's is certainly not you know it's 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 totally different so at least you know they're on they're on brand i give them that <laughs> it was uh, a very unusual very mm -hmm. unusual evening to say the least well you know what i can't i can't let the bill murray thing go because i did notice his picture on your page and then yeah. you mentioned him just now so you got a bill murray story because, you know, he, he, well, yeah, he I'll try. he's known to magically to appear in places, too. He is. Yeah, I, I didn't know that uh, at the time, but, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the, the documentary. But I got a better one than any of those in that documentary about him. Um, yeah, so we were playing in uh, we were playing in New York at the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden. We were opening for Sting. Um, this was like 1993. It was an amazing tour. We played incredible buildings and you know, it was uh, first class and the audience loved us. And it was the beginning of a, of the peak ride of Dada. We were just, our first record was out and it was a hit and we were out on this tour and, you know, things couldn't be going better for the band. Little did we know that this would actually be the peak for the band. But at the time, you know, and that's happening, you, you think this is the way it's going to be forever and right. you don't even appreciate it. Um, but looking back now, it was an amazing time. And so we were, we were playing in, uh, at Madison Square Garden in the Paramount Theater and uh, backstage after our set in comes the pro golfer uh, US Open winner uh, Scott Simpson his uh, caddy who was the true Dada fan of the bunch although Simpson and this guy used to go at it a little bit about who was a bigger fan but I think the caddy was the guy that turned everybody on and they got Bill Murray with him and they all come back and we had met uh, Paul Simon back there too, who totally iced us and ignored us huh. and, uh, you know, just like went right by us. He's got a reputation for being that way, Him but and Dylan those guys came back. Duo. Right. So that, those guys came back and we all met and they were very complimentary and we got to know Scott, Scott Simpson a little bit. And it was, uh, you know, it was a great little backstage hang and, uh, you know, but that was it. It ended and off they went to watch sting and we got on our bus and left. And then several months later, Back in L.A., my mom was, uh, still has this place. She was living in a little apartment uh, in Malibu on the beach. And I lived out there for a while on the beach, too. We lived down the street from one another for a while. 
uh, before everything went south for me and I had to give it up. <laughs> mm. I was still rolling as a rock star. I had my Malibu beach apartment, and my motorcycle. Um, so anyway, I was going to go meet her for lunch at uh, a restaurant called, used to be called Coogie's. It's down there in the, you know, the little shopping area, Cross Creek area in, Mal- in Malibu. So anyway, I'm walking into this restaurant to meet my mom. And, and as I'm going in through the door, Bill Murray hits the doorway almost at the same time. I mean, we're right there. And I, I look at and here's a guy who I'm not at all intimidated by for some reason. I just said, hey, Bill. And we had met before. So I was just like, hey, man, how's it going? And he looked at me kind of weird for a second. I was like, you know, Phil Levitt from Dada. And he, oh, yeah, what's going on? I said, well, I'm here to meet my mom for lunch. And he goes, you mind if I join you? Because if I go in there and eat by myself, people are going to be all over me. And uh, I said, uh, no, I mean, I'm meeting my mom. Uh, you know, if, 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 said, if that's okay with you, it certainly doesn't bother me. And he goes, well, as long as she doesn't mind. I said, no, nah, I think she'll be all right with it. So we go in <laughs> and we come in together. I'll never forget this. My mom, <laughs> my mom is like so cool that I come rolling up to the table with Bill Murray. And she looks at me like, of course. Yeah. What else is new? She's like, hello, how are you? We all sat down. We had a nice meal together. She didn't act at all like, what is going on here? She just played it off. And then at the end, you know, we got got into a conversation about golf somewhere along the line. And he goes, oh, you play? I said, yeah, I play a little bit. I was playing some golf. Everybody was playing golf then. Tiger Woods was doing his thing and everybody, you know, got into it. I was trying to play golf. I had some time on my hands because it was, you know, between tours or whatever. So he said, uh, you know, give me your number and uh, let's 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 play let's play golf sometime. I said, sure, great. And lo and behold, like I don't know how long, six weeks later, uh, phone rings at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> My former wife uh, answers it, comes finds me like, hey, there's this guy named Bill on the phone wants to talk to you. I pick up the phone, hey Phil, it's Bill Murray. You want to play golf? Uh, yeah, of course. Let's go. He goes, okay, meet me at the, the Ralph's parking lot of the Hughes market. Meet me at the Hughes market parking lot in 20 minutes. I'll pick you up. So, you know, I'm barely awake. Fly down there. He, he comes rolling up in this vintage Ferrari, wow. throw the clubs in the car and up off we go to the Malibu country club. And now on the way up there, I mean, yeah, I was having some success in my career, but I, of course, as a musician, especially on a label, you don't have any money. I mean, that's just how it is. You may be doing some cool things, but you don't have any money yet. It's too early for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suddenly realized, like, oh, I don't really have the money for this. I said, Bill, uh, how much is this round? And he just started laughing, like, don't, don't worry about it. I, I, got, I got golf and money. <laughs> so so we go up there. Golf and money. Yeah, I got golf and money. So we go up there and we, we, we're playing a threesome. Uh, it's me, Bill, and his brother, Brian Doyle-Murray. We get out on the Malibu Country Club and have this – you know, this incredible round where he's just so cool and funny. It's like being in the movie uh, Meatballs or something. It's just, you know. Caddyshack. He's, he's like, yeah, but I mean, he's like your uncle. You know, he's funny yeah. and he's ribbing you. And he, he took his shirt off. He's got a big belly. He's playing shirtless on the course and cracking jokes. I mean, it wasn't a serious round of golf, yeah. but it was he's a lot of fun. He's everybody's uncle, Bill. Yeah. And so I got this, you know, magical afternoon out there with him and we had a drink in the clubhouse afterwards. And then he brought me back to the parking lot. Off he goes. Here's the kicker on this story, though. Is this is this is this part that really kind of is the lesson in all this, because that was all beautiful. and You know, it was fun. 
several months later in, in, in uh, February, they have the uh, LA Open, the Nissan LA Open at the Riviera Country Club. And we, were, we had stayed in touch with Scott Simpson and his caddy. And so Joey and I, uh, I think all three of us, I think Mike was there too. We all got to go out to Riviera and Scott got us into the tournament and we followed him for the entire round. You know, we were in his, his gallery as he went around the course and we watched him play from up close, which is spectacular, of course. And we saw Bill, Bill was at the tournament watching and we ran into Bill there. Hey man, how's it going? And blah, blah, blah. And I had ridden my motorcycle to the golf course and somewhere along this walk around 18 holes. And I, I had the key to the motorcycle, which was a small key loose by itself in my pocket. And I had gone into my pocket for something and I must've come out with that key and dropped it because when I got to my bike at the end of the day to leave, I didn't have my motorcycle key. I could not start my bike. It was locked mm. and I didn't know what to do. I had to I'd have to go home. I still was living at this apartment in Malibu. I had to go home, get the key and come back. Joey had already left. Mike was gone. So there I am on the golf course by myself. There's no Uber in those days. Like, what do we do? And then I see Bill and his brother. They're leaving. I was like, hey, will you guys give me a ride down the street, down PCH? I, I have the key, et cetera, et cetera. They said, sure, come on. So I get in the car and we're driving down Pacific Coast Highway. We're going north from the Palisades into Malibu. And uh, Brian, Brian Doyle Murray pulls out a joint. He starts passing it around. We're getting a little high. We're having a great time. They're they're funny as hell. I'm you know I'm just loving it. It's like what what is going on here? I'm in the car with these two guys, <laughs> and then I decided that I was going to try to be funny and tell them you know just say something funny to get them to laugh. I you know it was a it was a wasn't like a calculated decision, but there was a conversation going, and I chimed in with something that I thought was funny, and it landed so flat, <laughs> you know that I that it just like killed everything in the car. Just kill the mood immediately. I don't know what it was. It's like you don't tell a joke to a couple of world-class comedians. Just don't do it. That's the lesson for people. So at that uncomfortable moment of silence, we're approaching my apartment, which is on the beach side of Pacific Coast Highway. And we're on the canyon side. And I say, oh, I'm over there across the street. And he just pulls the car over to the right up against the canyon and says, here we are. And I said, well, you know, and that's four lanes of high-speed traffic that you have to cross. And people get killed there a lot walking across Pacific Coast Highway. And I said, uh, you mean you're not going to pull it around? He goes, no, nah, this is it. <laughs> wow. And so I jumped out, and they sped away, and that was the last time I ever saw Bill Murray. You think it was the joke don't that did it? try to be funny. Well, I don't know. Maybe a little bit. I always say that, you know, don't don't try to be funny in front of a professional comedian. Let them be funny. That's like getting up and jamming with, uh, you know, Eric Clapton. Like, really? Is that really what you want to do? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, speaking of Eric, there was uh, Eric Roberts' stepsister worked at Jerry's Deli when I was a bartender there. And so he came in to pick her up after work. And uh-huh. great actor, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think Eric Roberts is just a trippy yeah, actor. Yeah, great. But he's totally. telling me a joke. You know, bartenders have heard every joke in the book. So right. he's telling right. me a joke, and I have to pretend I never heard it before. And he's acting <laughs> right. out the joke. This is a joke that takes know. about two minutes to tell, and he's taking like right. ten minutes to tell it. <laughs> what a trip, man! Yeah, so, you got to stay in your element. You got to stay in your lane. Yeah, stay in your lane. That's why I always say that. So, in closing, what are you working on now? Like, let's 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 bring everybody up to speed on you know 
how we can support well, you and what's going on yeah. you know, with the band now? Yeah, we just released a couple of new tracks. I mean, we put a record out at the end of last year called Superfecta, and that one's available uh, digitally, and we also have uh, compact discs of that. Um, to support the band, you uh, like the Facebook page and start engaging with us on social media because that's where we put up all of our interesting tales to tell, announcements about gigs, new music, we just released a couple of songs uh, last, or about ten days ago. Uh, a track called "Momentary Moonlight" and uh, and the, the other one is uh, called uh, "You People Are Drugs," and that's available as like a digital single right now. You can buy both tracks together, kind of like a double A side single, like they used to do. Uh, I mean, that's real. That 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 "You People Are Drugs" is a real love letter to the audience. You know, I I, I found that I've been performing, you know, my whole life since I was a little kid uh, i was thinking about that one day it's like i'm working so hard to keep the band out there you know we've done we've we've logged so many miles on the road man so many hard miles so much driving and bad food i mean we've done it for years and years but i and i i won't stop doing it i'm just trying to find a better way to do it now we're spreading our own message through social media so if you like the page and if you join our mailing list uh, we offer a lot of uh, special incentives to people that that are on our uh, mailing list, uh, early access to tickets, uh, first shot at limited run uh, product, whether it's uh, CDs or vinyl. Uh, we are going to be coming out with a with a deluxe vinyl version of our uh, debut album with liner notes and photos and a remastered uh, for vinyl version that we're going to be announcing soon. So you know that's that's where you'll find us. If uh, somebody happens to write about us, like we're, there's going to be a piece in the Pasadena Weekly out here that. We're going to record some more over the summer, and we're going to play some more in the fall. That's our plan. And we're going to hopefully get out to some different places in the country where we already know we have a pretty decent following. We're just going to try to build on it. How's your following in Philly? Philly is really good for us. Philly is good. That would be one of the, that would be one of the, the, the cities for sure. And I have to admit, when you were here last time, I did not make it, and I wanted to. But when you do know when you're playing Philly, let me know ASAP so that I of don't course. book a gig so I can come see you that night. I want I want to I want to see Seven Horse in the flesh with the megaphone, yeah, the whole <laughs> yeah. the whole nine yards, man. Yeah, I hope you I hope you do. It'd be great to have you there. And uh, no, I, yeah, I'll pay full me, ticket man. price, no problem. Okay, all right, cool. I appreciate be that. Defeating the purpose if I didn't. Yeah, right? Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot for, for talking to me, though. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. It's my pleasure. I'm happy. I, I'm Really, I, I I love this format. You know, I think uh, I love listening to this stuff when I'm driving around L.A. So hopefully uh, we can bring that same kind of experience to some people and, uh, you know, entertain them for a little while and get them out of the, uh, the ordinary stuff that they have to deal with every day. All right. Well, keep bringing it. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Hal. So there you go. Make sure you see Seven Horse with uh, Joey Callio and Phil Levitt coming to a city near you. They're doing a tour soon. They're putting out some new products. So uh, what I want you to do is check out their website. And uh, there will be links to it on the show notes. Uh, if you go to talesofthereroadwarriors.com slash phil-levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T. Um have links to all the things we talk about here. Facebook group, make sure you, sure you join that. And 
If you like what I'm doing, share the uh, podcast with your friends. I got some really good stuff coming up down the pike. And uh, I look forward to uh, talking with uh, some great people. Uh, And you will be a fly on my wall. So that's it. Happy 4th of July. And uh, stay safe out there. I want to leave you with a little seven-horse two-stroke machine. My dad pulled a gun on my granddad.